Dick Hillis was an American missionary to uh, China, uh, and he spent much of his years there in China ministering to people with the gospel and the good news of Jesus. He tells a story uh, during his time there where he came across a, a young mother, and the mother was starved and uh, she lacked not only her own nourishment, but she also had a young child with her uh, that was an infant. Uh, he actually, at one point, had a sweet potato, and that's all that he had in his possession, but he knew that she needed it far more than he did. And so he outstretched his hand, and he gave that sweet potato to her, and he watched her take it. Even in her malnourished and weak state, she took it and put it in her mouth, and she began to chew that sweet potato up, and then she would take it with her hands and she would begin to uh, force feed it into her young child's mouth. The child was weak, just like his mother. Uh, and he would watch her do that until that entire sweet potato was gone. As weak and as feeble as she was, exhausted from her own efforts, he watched her close her eyes. Her baby had just gone fast asleep. And with that, she would actually take her last breaths as she gave all that she had to her child. He would later learn that not only upon this mother's death, that this child would go on to survive and would actually grow up to be um, a, a successful and healthy child. The reason I tell you that is because love has a great cost. And we're reminded in Romans chapter 8 that Jesus did not even spare his own son so that you and I could acknowledge and understand what love is. And today, friends, we gather in hundreds of locations remotely reminding ourselves of the truth of this Palm Sunday morning, that Jesus is preparing to give himself up for uh, the sin of the world, that he is going to subject himself to death, uh, to uh, horrific things done to him. He's going to be spit upon, rejected, his beard is going to be plucked, and he is going to face physical torment so that we might experience spiritual freedom. And that's why we gather, that's why we celebrate, but it's also why we seek to love the way that Christ first loved us. Matter of fact, as we uh, wrap up our time together uh, in Romans 12, we do so with the thought in mind that we should realize that there is an art of being different in a world of, of indifference. Our lives have drastically changed over the last handful of weeks, and prayerfully, we can now begin to see some things the way that God intends us to see them. I pray that because of the new reality that many of us face in our homes and our schedules, that God is now beginning in some ways to get our attention and to help us to realize that as self-sufficient made Americans, that we really aren't made anything without Him. And I pray that we would be reminded that He is wanting to get all of us conform to his image, to his will, and to his way. And that's what Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 remind us of. Then as we become his men and women, his boys and girls, we begin to love other people the way that he's called us to. And we use our gifts uh, not to make us proud and haughty or even arrogant among the people that we serve alongside, but to remind ourselves that we need each other. And I can't be more thankful uh, in a season of my life than I am now in knowing that the church genuinely needs one another. That those who truly are God's people begin to, in a sense, be pruned and be 
found to be expectantly waiting on what he's wanting us to see and understand. And here's what I would tell you, friends. I really believe that God is doing something not just in the physical realm in which we see the reality of things going on, but I think there's a war being waged in the spiritual realm, according to Ephesians 6. And so what I want you to realize is that what you presently see now is not all that's going on, that there is much being done in the unseen realm, that there is a war being waged. And here's what I pray that happens is that we would know what true love really looks like from this. Matter of fact, that's what Paul would go on uh, to write to the church of Rome in Romans chapter 12. And in verse 9, he says these words, let our love be genuine. So hey gang, as we gather this morning, the question you got to ask yourself is what does love look like? And is your love truly genuine? And here's what I would say. I think we all have a capacity to love one another, but I think that our capacity to love others is very limited. Matter of fact, that in our own humanity, our love is oftentimes superficial. Our our love is oftentimes uh, duplicitous. Uh, It's got duplicity tied to it, meaning we love because we hope to get something in return. But what we see here in the scriptures is that our love ought to be genuine, that there's, there's nothing fake or contrived about it, but that it is an authentic type of love, the type of love that is only found in those who know and understand what r- real love looks like, that Jesus gave himself up. Matter of fact, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 tells us that he demonstrated his love for us in the way of giving himself on the cross. And so because we are believers in him and those of us who have committed our lives by faith in the Son of God, uh, we have a new life in Christ. Because of that, we can love in a way that's without limitations, a God-given love. And that's what he's calling us to do. And as we do that, we abhor what is evil and we hold fast to the things that are good. And church, I can't help of a greater think of a greater time in our world than for us as believers in Christ to love one another, to abhor evil and to cling, to hold fast to what is good. Matter of fact, in verse 10, it goes on and he just says, we ought to love one another with a brotherly affection that we ought to care for one another, uh, and we ought to outdo one another in showing honor, that in some ways we ought to compete for being God's man or woman in the kingdom of God. We ought to love to show hospitality. We ought to show the gifts that God has distributed to our care as stewards of his grace to others. Verses 3 and through 8, as we talked about last week, that's what we ought to be thinking of. It brings to mind Philippians 2, uh, verses 3 and 4. Is I just think about we should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Is what Paul writes to the church in Philippi. We ought to not even look to our own interests, but to the interest of others. That's really the goal, that we would have that mindset of Christ. And that's what genuine love looks like. That's what it looks like to outdo one another in showing honor. Listen, I don't know about you, but I think I'm very prone to selfishness. I'm prone to looking out for myself. But as believers in Christ, our, our goal is to not look out for our own interest, but to always be looking to the interest of others. And that is what Paul is trying to help the church of Rome Rome realize is what it looks like to love one another. In verse 11, he continues on. He says, hey, we shouldn't be slothful in zeal. We should be fervent in the spirit. We should serve the Lord. The idea is, is that we ought to let ourselves go for the sake of the kingdom, that we shouldn't always be holding back, worrying about ourselves. But if we have an opportunity, we ought to serve one another. We ought to do it with love and we ought to genuinely seek to do it with a fervent spirit as serving the Lord. That's really the idea. 
Which then brings about the whole idea that if we're to love one another, what does that really look like? And here's what I would tell you. I think we've got love confused. This idea of serving one another, we oftentimes miss it. And I think 1 Corinthians 13, a great passage on love, is a fantastic point we could make. But I don't want to make the point of reading that passage because many of us have read it in our lives. But I want to make clear what Paul says before he reads the passage about love being patient and love being kind. Here's what he says, coming off the heels of 1 Corinthians 12 and showing gifts uh, given to God by uh, the Spirit, which we would call spiritual gifts, Paul warns the church of Corinth, who is mesmerized by the greater gifts, uh, healing, prophecy, tongues, all of those different things. This is what he says is the most important thing in the body. And he's telling the church of Corinth this, and this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3. He goes, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge and I have all the faith so as to remove mountains, but I have no no love, I'm nothing. He goes on in verse 3, he goes, hey, if I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned and I have no love, I have nothing. I gain nothing. And I think here's my point is I think oftentimes in in trying to appease God through the greater gifts, we want to be more spiritual. Uh, We want to stand out among the crowd. I think we miss it. And, And here's what I want you to understand. The art of being different in a world of indifference is not to say, hey, look at me and look at my great sacrifice. Look at all the things I do. I've got prophetic ability. Hey, look at my spiritual gifts and how I can communicate with God in ways that you can't. And I think he's saying, hey, you're missing it. Matter of fact, what he's saying is if you think of it this way, that if you beat your body in submission, you think, hey, my goal is to sell everything, give it to the poor, and then there's nothing that can hurt me. There's no disease that can come against me. Then he's going, you're missing it. And the reason you're missing it is because he goes, those aren't the greater works. The greatest work that a believer can have in their life, and we should all say amen to this, is the way we love one another. The way that we handle and treat and care for one another. If we have great abilities through the Spirit and we don't love one another, he goes, you might as well be a symbol. And I don't know about you, but if I were to take a symbol right now, or you were to let your kids play with a drum set right now as you're trying to listen to this, you wouldn't last long because it would become annoying. And I think what he's trying to help us realize is this. To be different in a world of indifference is often manifested best through our love, through the way we handle and treat and care for one another, that we're not arrogant or proud or boastful in our walk with Jesus, but that we demonstrate everything that we have in Christ through humility, knowing that we would be nothing without him. That's what Paul says in Romans seven eighteen, that we are nothing apart from Christ. And so let our love be genuine, abhor what is evil, evil, cling to one, uh, uh, what is good, love one another with zeal and a fervent spirit. Why? Because of God's love. Matter of fact, in verse 12, he even encourages us to move forward in that. He goes, we ought to always be rejoicing in hope. We ought to be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And when we think about the rejoicing in hope, I, I think it's very interesting that uh, what, he's, what he is saying is, is that in order for you to rejoice in hope, it doesn't mean that, that in some ways you take your, your eye off of the current results and, and then at some point you go, when these things go away, then I can rejoice. 
rejoicing has nothing to do with your current circumstances. Friends, if we would like, we can grumble and complain at our new normalcies. We can grumble and complain about the things that we don't like or, or what our government is doing or why we're not gathering together. Or in many ways, we can rejoice and hope. And rejoicing and hope simply means that we continually set our eyes on things above, that Colossians 3 passage, that we think more through eternity than we do our present and seen realities. Remind yourselves, friends, that there is something to come that you and I cannot see, which is a great measure of our faith. When it says be patient in tribulation, I think the idea is that we are patient in our waiting, longing for a a heavy dose of steadfast endurance. That is what marks the believer. Not that we quickly pass through something, but that we're reminded of our future hope. And that word there, patient and tribulation, literally means to endure, to steadfastly move forward with the pace and you're constant in prayer as we think through that. So here's what I would tell you. As we think through this, it's important that you realize that, that patience is not this passive waiting game but it's an active endurance. It's not this passive thing that we sit around and we wait and we twiddle our thumbs and we go, you know what, one day this is going to pass and we can't wait to get back to our new normals. Listen, friends, listen. If you don't hear anything else I say today, may we use the time that we have to rejoice in hope, to be patient in the midst of our tribulation, to be constant in prayer. Friends, may we use this time to draw near to one another, near to our God through love and a genuine steadfast zealousness as we seek to be after the things of God. Just as Paul writes to the church of, uh, of Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says something very similar. He goes in verse 16, rejoice always. In verse 17, he goes, pray without ceasing. In verse 18, he encourages us to give thanks in all circumstances. And so that's what we're talking about. He goes, we, right now we're steadfast. We rejoice. We're patient. We're praying. We're giving thanks. Why? Because there is more happening than what you and I see. And we're praying that we would one day have the eyes to see and the heart to understand what's going on. Until then, verse 13 says, we contribute to the needs of the saints and we seek to show hospitality. The idea is that our love manifests itself by the way we contribute to one another. It's a reminder of that Acts 2 passage of what the early church would do. One of the things that I've heard time and time and time again in all my conversations as I've picked up the phone and I've reconnected with people is a genuine spirit of love and saying, hey, listen, we have all we need at the present time, but if you hear of a need, we would love to help. And friends, that excites me. It reminds me what the church is about, that there are people out there around us and our families and our neighborhoods in our communities that they don't have what we have. They don't have a body of believers that they are bound to that is watching out for one another. And so, friends, we ought to be thinking of ways that we can seek to show hospitality. Verse 14 then encourages us to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The idea there is that we would be praying not just for ourselves, not just for those that we hope to serve, but even for our enemies. That we have an opportunity to show God's affection and love to one another, and we can be different than the world the way we respond to one another. Verse 16 then goes on and says, and we should live in harmony with one another. Hey, don't be haughty. That means don't be proud. Hey, but then associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes. It's a reminder that we ought to live to, in, in uniformity, uh, or in unity together, despite our lack of uniformity, that we ought to 
always be thinking through how we love one another. Uh, uh, Augustine said it this way, in essentials, we ought to dwell in unity. In non-essentials, we ought to dwell in liberty. In all things, we ought to think through charity and how we can be kind and compassionate and we ought to love one another. In verse 17, it then goes on and says, and we should repay no, no one with evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of God. Uh, Martin Luther King once said it this way, uh, if, if we continue to do eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we would be blind and to, uh, toothless nation. That if we continue to do to others what has been done to us, that we are all at fault. And we would, we would be uh, missing every eye and every tooth that we have, simply because that's who we are apart from Christ. And so we ought to think through a different way of doing things. Friends, I'm reminded of what I've been reading in 1 Peter chapter 2. Matter of fact, as we kind of wrap up the last handful of verses together this morning, I'm going to pull in 1 Peter 2, simply because it's a great reminder of what many of us have been reading, and it goes almost hand in hand. Matter of fact, as we think about not repaying evil for evil, but to do what's honorable in the sight of all, we could be reminded of what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 12, to a group of people who were persecuted and running for their lives, at the hands of some very vicious people in Rome um, and the persecution of Nero and, and the surrounding regions. And so I would just tell you, uh, he says in 1 Peter 2, 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Even though many Christians were accused of doing things unjustly, he goes, listen, make sure you live honorable lives. Make sure there's no immorality among you. Make sure you don't repay evil for evil. Make sure you don't do things that other people will do. Make sure you're different, even though most people are indifferent to the things that are going on around you. In verse 18 uh, of Romans 12, he says this classic line, and it's, as much as possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The question that you might ask yourself is, is, am I known as a person of peace? Do I naturally make peace with people? Because that's what even Peter encourages the exiles to do in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and following. Uh, he says that we ought to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by, by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So what he says there is this. He goes, as we think about living at peace with everyone, that's not just those that are, that are in our house that it's a little easier to live at peace with it sometimes. Although in this time, you're locked up together and there's a lot of you that you're fighting and quarreling and you're finding a struggle to find peace. We ought to. We ought to seek peace and pursue that with all of our being. But we also ought to do that with our neighbor and with our friends and with our enemies and what Peter is encouraging us to do is with every human institution, with the authorities of our workplace, uh, with the people that help govern our lives. That includes the government, the government in this case, that we ought to find ways and, and to live with them. And, and that this is the will of God, verse 15 would tell us in 1 Peter 2. And so here's what I would tell you. I would say that if we're not careful in this stage of the game, we could begin to point fingers at one another. And even in the church, we might even say things like this. I can't believe that um, our staff and our pastors and our leadership is not continuing to gather together. Even though the government's telling us we have to, doesn't that uh, go against what God's calling us to do? Uh, in many cases, you might even argue that uh, this disease isn't going to touch us, that because we're believers in Christ, we're not, it's not going to touch us. And here's what I would tell you. Um, neither one of those things, I think, is true. Uh, one, we 
we want to honor the government simply because God's encouraging us to do that. Number two, we're certainly all could be affected by this, and we could all suffer on in this on this earth, knowing that there's going to be a day in which none of us suffer again. But until then, what do we do? We do the will of God, which in this particular case, you might say, well, if you do this way, you kind of like faith and you're living in fear. And I would argue the difference. What I think we're doing is we're seeking to love one another well. Uh, what I'm thinking about is the people who are susceptible to such things, knowing that the government in this day and age is not encouraging the church to shut down. Matter of fact, just recently, our governor here in the state of Texas encouraged the doors of the church to stay open. But what he is saying is, is would you please think through things differently? Because there are people in our society that are going to be susceptible to this disease. And so the way that we treat that shows our love, our hospitality for one another. And so that's why we've chosen to take the stance that we have. Um, Listen, do I want to be home? Uh, Do I want to to do things the way that we're having to find ways to do to connect with you? I would say no. But do I think that God is up to something? Yes. Do I think that he can use our present reality to help us see some things that he wants us to see for eternal purposes? And I would proclaim to you emphatically, yes, yes, yes. And that's why I really have just thought a lot about Uh, what Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verses 16 and 17, he says this, so we ought to live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That as we seek to serve God, he says, this is how you do it. Verse 17, you honor the emperor. You love the brotherhood. You fear God, and you honor the emperor. And so um, I actually quoted that wrong, so let me say it one more time. You honor everyone. You love the brotherhood. You fear God, and you honor the emperor. And so that's what we want to do. And so in verse 19, he kind of begins to wrap it up and he helps us to see what that looks like. Verse 19, he said, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Uh, we ought to remind ourselves that the reason we don't repay evil for evil is because the vengeance is the Lord, that He is in control of all of it, and we should seek to trust Him in that. In verse 20, He says, To the contrary, if somebody. Um, is evil towards you, or they say something malicious about you, or they do something to you or your family or somebody you love, he goes, there's a, there's a different way to respond. And he says this, he goes, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. The best way I can explain it to you is oftentimes, uh, one of the greatest ways we put evil to shame is by our kindness in our humility. And listen, in the flesh, that's not my natural response. My natural response is, if you come at me, I want to come back at you. But I'll tell you, in all my years of marriage, almost 18 years, one of the things my wife has always taught me in her humble, kind, and loving demeanor is that if I come at her, I'm a little bit sharp, or I'm a little bit witty, or um, I'm a little bit self-seeking or rude, her calm demeanor, her gentle spirit, and her words they, they, in a sense, heap burning coals on my head. The reason why is when she looks at me and she goes, hey, Brandon, you okay? Like, are you, just, like you just need to vent? You, you just want to be rude? Or you just want to be kind of mean? Like, what's going on? When, when she says those things, it's like, what, what do I say back? I mean, she is, what she has done is, is chosen not 
to get in a volleyball match with me. She's not going to go back and forth with me. We're not going to continue to rise until the tensions are so high that we're yelling at one another. We're, we're saying slanderous and, and malicious things to one another. What she's done is she's stopped it in many ways. She has decided not to go toe-to-toe with me. And so because of that, she has demonstrated peace. And that's what it looks like, friends. A matter of fact, um, we know that Jesus addresses the very thing on the Sermon on the Mount. In, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 47, he says this, um, Hey, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was an old Jewish tradition. Uh, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and of the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same thing? And if you greet one another, but like your brothers, like you only greet those that are your friends or your brothers, then what more are you doing than, than other people? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And the point that Jesus is trying to say is this, is look, it's easy to love those who are going to love you back, but what does it look like to love those that are difficult to love? What does it look like for you to realize that God is in charge in this season, in this day and age, he allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust? That means the evil farmers getting some of the rain we're getting and the good farmers getting some of the rain we're getting. But in all, he says, I will judge. And that's what we do. We trust God that he is going to take care of it all. And then in verse 21, he wraps up this chapter uh, with this word, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And friends, I can't help but think about the idea of what he's talking about there. And what he's talking about is really the ultimate example that we have. And Peter's addressing a very similar thing as he wraps up First uh, Peter 2. And, and here's what he does. He goes, when we think about overcoming evil with good, he goes, we have a classic example. And who is that classic example other than Jesus himself? And so in First Peter, verse First Peter 2, verses 21 and 23, this is what it says. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, so that you might follow his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him, God, who judges rightly, who judges justly is what it might say in your Bible. And so here's what I would just tell you. What would it look like in all gospel accounts? You see Jesus uh, on the road of Calvary, and he's heading to the cross. They're, they're, they're beating him. They're, they're hurling insults uh, at him. They're mocking him. They're spitting upon him. And what if it said that they mocked him and he mocked them back? What would it be if, if it said that and he, he spit back at them? Wouldn't that be like crazy in our Bibles to read? Like we know that wouldn't be happening of the Son of God. And here's what I would say, that just as Jesus didn't revile in return, we shouldn't revile. Just as he didn't threaten, we shouldn't threaten. We should be people of peace. Our love ought to be genuine. We ought to maintain a steadfast spirit, enduring to the end. And so friends, I think the Lord has a lot to teach us as it looks to being different in a world of indifference. Matter of fact, you might think about Jesus, and I'm reminded of, his, uh, of one of his prototypes in the Old Testament. Uh, you might remember a guy named Joseph. Joseph sold into slavery uh, at the hands of his brothers. Um, 
they bring a, a coat of many colors back to his dad. And they say, hey, Dad, um, your son, your chosen one has been killed. They lie straight to his face. They cover it up. Uh, many years go by, and Joseph is actually still alive. Joseph's not only alive, but has gone through many difficulties, many insults in his own life, has found himself in some pretty precarious places. But even in the midst of it, he steadfastly presses on and he endures. One day he becomes the second man in charge of Egypt, and he is second only Pharaoh, in which it was God's provision in a time and season that Israel, God's chosen people, would need provision. And so Uh, What you would see is that Joseph's family, in a time of famine and hardship and suffering, uh, the stock market has crashed. They're looking for something to do and and places to find some rations. They head over to their neighboring uh, place, their, their, their rival country, Egypt, and they seek food and refuge. And lo and behold, they run into someone who recognizes them, none other than their brother. Their brother makes peace with them. He gives plenty of provisions for them. And the brothers are okay with Joseph until something happens in Genesis 50, in which we get an account of that Joseph's father passes away. And when he dies, his brothers are no longer as comforted as they once were. They knew that Joseph wouldn't hurt them in a time uh, that their father was alive. But now that that dad is gone, they're wondering if their brother is still going to be just and fair and loving. And here's what they'll find out. In that response, they'll ask him, and this is what he would say in Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. Joseph says to them, Brothers, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Meaning, it's not my place to judge you or, or to put evil upon you. He goes, that's, that's not what my desire is. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust that he'll do with you and to you what he desires But for me, I'm going to see the best in it all. And then this is when you get the classic line in Genesis 50, verse 20. He goes, as you, as for what you meant, you brothers, and your evil and your malicious intent and your planning and your scheming and your lying in the seasons of distrust, what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good to bring about that many people should have been kept alive as they are today. And so God took your evil and he used it for good. And can I just tell you that the greatest evil that has ever happened in the world was placed upon Jesus, the Son of God, for us as a demonstration of love so that he could care for us. And friends, in a handful of days, we're going to celebrate that together on Good Friday. Next week, we're going to celebrate his resurrection. And I want you to know that this chapter points to the reason we love others is because God has loved us. Friends, we love you. It's a pleasure to gather with you this morning. Thanks for hanging in with me through Romans chapter 12. Let me pray for us as we close our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. Father, we pray that we would honor everyone, that we would love the brotherhood, that we would fear God, and that we would honor the emperor. But Father, we pray most of all that those that we honor are a result of the honor and the love that we have for you because you first loved us. Father, the only reason I have the capacity to love is because of what you've done in my life. You took someone who was once living in darkness, who was not a chosen person, who was not of the race or the family of God, and you made me into your family. And I thank you that you've done that with hundreds of us that are watching together today. And because of that, you're calling us, compelling us to press on, to love well, 
to genuinely seek to serve one another and to be the church in a world that is dark and indifferent. God, would there be something different about us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.